Today's scripture reading is found in chapter 6, Timothy, verses 11 to 21. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever, amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to put generous and to be willing and generous to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted in your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in doing so, have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you to Haley for reading that. Now, I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, Brian is uh, kind of assuming his preaching pose, and the worship team are still on the back. Uh, what's going on? So I am going to be tackling two sermons today in one go. You can turn the picture off for the moment, just so that it doesn't distract too many people, but I'm tackling two sermons in one go. Don't panic. I'm not preaching two full sermons in one go. It is simply that in the passage that we have read both last week and this week, there are a few different things that Paul covers. But to do justice to them, we need to address them. And so rather than doing one full sermon, I'm going to first speak about giving, around the offering, around tithing, around making and bringing our contributions. Now, I know some of you might be visiting with us this morning, and you might come with an idea or a, a perception that church just wants my money, and this isn't helping that perception. <laughs> Stay with me, and you realize it's better that I speak into it than not. I think actually so, many, so often we as the church make the mistake of not wanting to offend and not wanting to cover money, so we kind of brush over it when it comes to the offering. And we simply take up the offering. And because we know we've got visitors, we'll say something along the lines of, if you're visiting with us today, this is a way that we partner together in worshiping the Lord and in building the kingdom, and please don't feel obligated to put anything into the bag. And then off we go. Yet the scriptures are filled with instructions into our finances. They're filled with instructions on how to live with this thing called money. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 6, from verses 7 to 10, and then again 17 to 19, Paul talks about money. 
Now, regardless of how much or how little you feel you have, I want to remind you that you're not taking it with you. And now we can put the picture up. You've heard this comment before that you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Apparently this guy didn't get the memo. Everything you have, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but the reality is everything you have, the wealth that you might amass, the things that you bring to yourself and hoard for your life, there will come a point where someone else will throw them away. And if you've amassed a vast wealth and, and kind of all this money and riches, I'm sorry to say somebody else will spend it. Whether your children, your family, or somebody else in your last will and testament, somebody else will spend it. Your, your wealth, your empire will come to an end because it is temporary. And so Paul, in these few verses, speaks about this idea of contentment. And Paul says, learn to be content with what you have. If you don't learn contentment, you run the risk of falling into a trap. And this is a little bit of what David spoke about last week. For the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is a trap for us. If we fall into that lie of believing that we don't have enough. John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much is enough? A wealthy individual such as himself, you would think he would say, well, I, I've, I've got enough. Actually, his answer to that question, how much is enough, was just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. If somebody so fantastically wealthy can think to themselves, I don't have enough, I just need a little bit more and then it will be enough. Well, how easy is it for all of us to fall into that same trap? I had a boss when I was in the corporate environment and one day he was trying to motivate me and he said to me, Brian, are you hungry for money? He was a little taken aback when I went, no, not really. Because that was all he knew. That was the only way he knew to motivate his employees was dangle some money in front of them and then I'll get more out of them. And Brian, are you hungry for money? Problem is, as Paul says in this passage, a lack of contentment leads to ruin and destruction. That same boss who asked me if I was hungry for money, years later was prosecuted for fraud and corrupt financial dealings. Clearly he was hungry for money. We can take the picture off the, the screen now. What's a better way of living with our money? How should we live? Now, Paul speaks about this right there, and it's, it's painfully obvious. Paul says, avoid arrogance. If you have wealth, if you have money, avoid arrogance, because that can be taken away from you in an instant. And how often have we heard that testimony? somebody wealthy, somebody with great value and riches and finances, and it's all been taken away in an instant. Paul says, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Either you can have your hope in your riches and your finances and your wealth and, and kind of everything you build up, but that's temporary. That's fading. That's passing. That can be taken away in an instant. Rather, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God, and while you do that, 
If for some reason God sees fit to bless you financially and to bless you with riches and wealth, well then be generous with that. Be generous, share what you have, because in that way you will lay up treasures in heaven. You will lay up riches for yourself in the coming age. Now, Paul's not speaking into some sort of socialist idea here. Paul understands the value of hard work and being rewarded for hard work. The scriptures understand that and and speak into that. But what Paul is confronting is this idea of, I must have more and I must get more because he knows the human heart never has enough. And so Paul says to find contentment, learn to be generous, learn to share what you have. Because you've always got enough to share. So why then do we as a church take up an offering? Why do we do this? Well, we we give in obedience because we understand that's what Scripture teaches us. The Scriptures declare that everything we have comes from God in the first place. And so when it comes to this moment, I give back in proportion to what I have to remind myself that it's all God's in the first place. He simply entrusted it to me, and he wants me to use it in a way that serves him and serves his kingdom. We give in obedience. We give sacrificially because of his sacrifice to us. We give as a reminder that our hope is in God. It's in Jesus Christ, not in our wealth. And we give together when we come together Because we understand that together we can do so much more than each one could individually. This is why we support various ministries and various mission organizations. Every week, and this is not an exaggeration, every week I get a letter or multiple letters come onto my desk from ministry and mission organizations literally from around the world asking for partnership, asking for financial assistance. And sadly, so many of those, I I have to respond and say, we are not in the position to do that. We have a number of ministries that we're supporting, and we'd love to support more, but we can't. And this is why we take the offering, because together we can have a far greater impact than we could alone. I heard somebody once say, when talking about offering and giving, it must have been Baptist because it was a three-pointer, He said, giving God first honors God. Saving second builds legacy. And living off the rest develops contentment. Let me say that again. Giving God first honors God. Saving builds legacy. And living off the rest develops contentment. Yet so many people try and do it the other way around. We try and spend everything we have on ourselves, often going into vast amounts of debt to try and keep up appearances or to have more because we are not content with what we have. So we spend it all. And then after spending, we realize that we're not saving. We're not building up a legacy. We're not building up the opportunity to be able to bless others. And if we do give God, it's some spare change because we feel guilty and we just want to appease our guilt. So when we take up the offering, we do it in obedience to God because we've understood that everything comes from God in the first place and our hope and our trust is in him and we want to honor him as we worship him 
And we ask him to take that, to multiply it, and to use it for the furtherance of his kingdom. With that said, I'm going to pray, and then we're taking up our offering. If you're visiting this morning, I have no intention of laying a guilt trip on you. But you're welcome to share in this offering, because it's an act of worship. And it's an active reminder that God has given me what I have, and God is in control. If you're a regular and a member of White Rock Baptist Church, this is your home. Maybe you're not in the habit of giving regularly and giving faithfully. Again, I have no intention of laying some guilt trip on you, but I hope that the Spirit has spoken to you through the Scriptures and reminded you of what we can do when we partner together for the kingdom. Let's pray together, and then we'll take up the offering. Father, I thank you for your word that speaks into the topic of finance and money. And it speaks into the topic of coming before you when we gather as the church and giving, bringing tithes, bringing offerings, bringing over and above of what we give. Father, this morning as we take up the offering, I pray that by your spirit, you would take away any sense of guilt, any sense of manipulation, any sense of conviction from Satan. And Father, that each of us would, in our own hearts, hear from you and do business with you. And Lord, we would respond as we feel and, and hear you speaking. And however that might look, whatever that might be, that Lord, we would learn to give to you as a way of honoring you and worshiping you, and as a way of reminding ourselves that all we have comes from you. Father, it's so easy to lose contentment, to see what others have and to covet and to, to want the same. Help us this morning to forget about that and to learn contentment. And Father, whatever the offering might be, Lord, we pray that you would multiply it, that you would bless it, that it wouldn't be about a little empire, it wouldn't be about our little name, but God, it would all be about your kingdom and that it would be about taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the furthest ends of the world. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. If the stewards would come forward for this morning's offering.
Amen. You may be seated. And thank you to the team. You may be seated now as well. We'll see you back up in a couple of minutes. If you're uh, taking notes this morning uh, and you're one of those compulsive, I need the title, I need the theme of what the preacher is speaking about, my title for you this morning is Running in the Right Direction. Running in the Right Direction. Did anybody catch the NBA Finals game recently where J.R. Smith ran the wrong way? Anybody see that? I mean, I know that's pretty embarrassing. I, I get it. And, and out of that have been a whole bunch of these LeBron James memes over there where LeBron, I can just imagine it like, you know, that way, what are you, what, what are you doing? What's going on? And if you don't know what happened in the NBA final, J.R. Smith caught the ball and started running the wrong way until the rest of his team kind of, and obviously he realized and it was, it was too late. Um, I feel for them, I do, but I just love the metaphor that it presents. I love that image of running in the wrong direction. So why don't you turn to the person next to you and ask them, are you running in the wrong direction? Okay, it was a simple question. It was a long discussion. Got to cut that short. I'm sorry for those of you who don't have anybody next to you and you couldn't ask that. The question was implied to you as well. You know, it might be really cute when a toddler does it for a race, you know, a preschool race or something like that, and a toddler runs off in the wrong direction, and we laugh and just think it's so cute. It's certainly entertaining when a professional sportsman or sportswoman does it in, in such a, a big way. It's entertaining, I think, because it reminds us that we're all human. And so we, we kind of go, okay, yes, they're human as well. They make mistakes. <sighs> okay, I can breathe a sigh of relief. But running in the wrong direction for us is disastrous when it comes to our spiritual lives. If we are running in the wrong direction in our spiritual lives, that is disaster waiting to happen. And so Paul deals with this as he writes to Timothy in the closing portion of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 21, Paul addresses this idea of running in the right direction as opposed to running in the wrong direction. And in the midst of it, he, he kind of says a whole number of things. He has this incredible ADD moment, uh, which we'll get to in, in a bit. But in the midst of this, he kind of speaks about this idea of direction, choosing and setting the right direction and then heading in that right direction. In the midst of talking about this, he, he has this moment of worship where he utters this doxology as he thinks of God and then worships God in the midst of it. And he also speaks about confession. There are a whole number of things, but I think they're all held together under this umbrella of running in the right direction. So first up, Paul talks about set the right direction. Set the right direction. In, in other words, the words he uses both flee and pursue. And so Paul begins with this exhortation to run away. Run away. When you see sin, when you're confronted with sin, don't stop, don't entertain it, don't try and engage with it. Run away. Flee for your life. Flee from un unrighteousness. Flee from sinfulness. We have the Old Testament illustration of this with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. 
Now, this is a picture by uh, Guido Reni from 1631. For those interested, oil on canvas. Uh, It's a picture of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. I have to tell you, I, I had to Google a number of images of historical paintings, and this was the only one that was rated kind of all age groups and suitable for church (laughs) services. Some of them are really not suitable, uh, even though they might fall under the umbrella of art. But, But this is the illustration. This is what Paul has in mind as he's speaking to young Timothy and speaking to the congregation. Be like Joseph, who when Potiphar's wife tried to entice him and tried to get him to sleep with her, Joseph didn't entertain it. Joseph didn't stop and try and give a sermon to her. Joseph didn't say this is why this is not a good idea or anything like that. Joseph fled. And Potiphar held on to his coat. And we know the rest of that story. But Joseph ran away. David possibly was thinking about this when he wrote Psalm 37. And in Psalm 37, verse 27, David says, flee from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. Flee. But I, I, I love how Paul doesn't just say flee. You see, he, I think he understands that if it was just run away, we might start, we might start running away. But we're going to get to a point where, well, now what? I'm running away, but, but I don't know what I'm doing, so I might stop. And I might start coming back. And so Paul says, when you flee, set a new target and pursue. Flee from sin and pursue righteousness. In fact, Paul says, run towards righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Righteousness, we're going to touch on in a moment, but righteousness simply means to be right with God. It's the idea of confessing Christ as Lord, believing in Him as my Lord and Savior, and that makes me righteous or right with God. Pursue godliness. God said to the nation of Israel and echoes it in the New Testament, be holy because I am holy. Be godly. Live godly lives. Live such godly lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of wrong, they find no fault. And they're forced to worship your heavenly Father. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. That whole idea of trusting God. Trusting and obeying. Depending on Him. Pursue faith. Live by faith in God. Love David kind of touched on this a few weeks ago around, you know, I don't have to like everyone, but I have to love everyone. I have to love everyone in the family of God. This morning, as a few of us gathered before church to pray, which is an open invitation, by the way, every Sunday at 9.15, we pray up in the boardroom. I'd love for that room to overflow because too many people are in there and we'll go elsewhere. But this morning, as we were praying, someone shared from 1 John chapter 3. And the powerful reminder of loving one another in the family of God. And what does loving one another look like? It's laying down our lives for each other. Because we have that example in Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. And so when I live in love, in this community of love, I put others' needs ahead of mine. I'm patient and kind. In fact, I could read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 here. I don't keep record of wrongs. I always hope, I I always believe the best. Love, pursue love. 
Pursue endurance. That's that idea of keep on keeping on. Because there are going to be days where you fall. There are going to be days where you stumble and trip and land face first in the mud. Paul says, don't stay there. Get up. Pursue endurance. Keep on keeping on. Even in days where you're tested to your breaking point. And then Paul speaks about gentleness as well. And, And it might seem a little bit odd there. I take gentle over here to be humble in that place, to think less of myself, and not to think of myself as better than others as I pursue this, but to be gentle with those around me. You know, in, in this discussion of fle- fleeing and pursuing, Paul says in verse 12 to Timothy, he says, fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You know, that idea, that command, that exhortation or instruction, fight the good fight, it's not a militant thing. Paul's not telling Timothy, go out and fight. No, Paul's saying, Timothy, fight the good fight in your heart. Pursue, pursue that righteousness and and fight because it will take discipline, it will take sacrifice. Don't give up, keep fighting. In fact, it's echoing Christ's commands, Be, be ruthless with sin in your life. Gentle in others, but ruthless in your own life. Run in the right direction. It's going to take work and discipline. And there will be days where it will feel like a fight. Keep on fighting. It's a little similar to what Paul instructed the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That continue to work out your salvation, it's the same idea of fight the good fight. Continue, persevere, work hard, be disciplined and diligent in it. Run in the right direction and don't give up running. So Paul says to Timothy, set the right direction and then run in that direction. But in the midst of that, the second thing I think Paul brings to mind for Timothy is keep your head up and worship God. I love these few verses, verses 15b and verse 16. In fact, if if you're one of those kind of people who likes to highlight or underline in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline and highlight 15b and verse 16. They show just how naturally worship came to Paul. We might read it and we think Paul's had a little ADD moment right here. Paul's instructing Timothy, and he starts speaking about God, and and then he stops and kind of thinks. And I love it. Towards the end of verse 15, he says, God. And and I can almost visualize the the pause. And he kind of looks up and to the right, and he starts thinking about God. And he goes on to say, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. That's a doxology. Doxology is a a word we get from the Greek doxa, means glory, and logia means written or oral expression. And so doxology is simply the expression of glory. 
Let me ask you a question, friends. How easily are you led into worship as you think about or speak about God? I don't mean that to be a, a guilt-inducing thing. I, I know there are some of us in the midst of this community who struggle with that because we're walking through deep valleys at the moment. We've had some, some deep experiences that, that, that challenge us. And so we're grappling with this idea of God being good and God being sovereign. For those of you for whom worship comes naturally, pray for those to whom it doesn't. Pray that they too, when they contemplate God, even in the difficult places, would be led to worship. That's what I pray for myself. I read through Paul and, and I think to myself, oh, Brian, why can't you be at that place where at the very mention of the name of God, the thought of God just leads you to worship? Oh, God, would you bring revival to us that at the mention of your name there would be worship, that we would encounter you. And so Paul says to Timothy, and therefore by extension to the rest of us, set your direction. And as you're running in that direction, lift your head up and worship God. But he also speaks about this confession. Make a confession. Make your confession. In verse 12, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In verse 13, he illustrates it with Christ confessing before Pilate. And in fact, verse 17 still carries a concept of it. In verse 17, when he talks about hope in God versus hope in our finances, that's a confessional position. I confess that my hope is in Christ, not in my own wealth. We might ask, well, what is the confession? It is simply that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 10 verse 9, and he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul says the same in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Each one of us needs to come to a place in our own lives where we are able to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It, it might be a dangerous assumption, and sometimes we kind of assume, well, we're all here in church, so we've all made that confession. But let me ask you, have you confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you confessed and believed, confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and Savior? That's what Scripture calls us to do. But not only to confess privately, to confess publicly in the public arena. That's the image of baptism. That's what baptism is. It's when I stand before the public and I confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I don't want to belabor the point we've got a baptismal service planned for a couple of months' time, but maybe you have never been through the water of baptism. Would you prayerfully consider that? It might be that you became a Christian many years ago and you made that confession that Jesus is Lord. And now you're sitting going, well, it was so long ago, it seems a bit pointless. It is not pointless. It is still called of us. It is still commanded in Scripture to make that public confession would you think about confessing publicly? 
We need to for the sake of the world around us. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world around us looks very different and generally are interested in very different things to us. And that shouldn't stop us. That shouldn't scare us. In fact, we should find common language in order to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So what's going on in the world today? There's a lot. So I'm just going to point out a few little things. A couple of months ago was the Super Bowl final. Anybody remember the Super Bowl from this year? Some of you watched it and you're racking your brain going, I don't even remember who played. Super Bowl final, Philadelphia Eagles played the New England Patriots. The Eagles won. Do you know that there were 103 million viewers watching online? 2015, by the way, had the biggest Super Bowl viewership with 114 million. A little more recently, a little more closer to home, was the Stanley Cup final. Washington Capitals took on the Vegas Golden Knights. You know that because it happened so recently, but just in case you've forgotten, the Capitals won. 4-1. They averaged 4.9 million viewers. Game five had the most with 6.7 million viewers. But let's talk about World Cup soccer. (laughs) Seen as that started last weekend. This past week saw England beat Tunisia. And do you know that was England's most viewed event of the year? You heard that correctly. Even with a royal wedding a few weeks before, the England-Tunisia game had more viewers in England than the royal wedding. 21 million people tuned in for that soccer match. Last Sunday, Germany took on Mexico. Hopefully we will forget about it soon. The Mexicans won't. Do you know that when Mexico scored their goal against Germany, so many Mexicans in Mexico jumped around in celebration that it registered as a seismic event. (laughs) And you can Google that. There was so much movement by people jumping around and celebrating a goal that it showed up as a mini earthquake on their seismic scales. 26 million viewers watched that game. The 2010 FIFA World Cup was hosted by South Africa. It was shown in every single country and territory on Earth, including Antarctica and the Arctic Circle, generating record-breaking viewing figures in TV markets around the world. Based on viewers watching a minimum of 20 consecutive minutes of coverage, the 2010 tournament reached nearly a third of the world's population. 2.2 billion viewers watched. 3% higher than 2006, by the way. The average in-home global audience for each match was 188 million, up 6%. The final, the final of the 2010 Soccer World Cup saw 530.9 million people tuning in to watch one event. So why do I share that? And more importantly, why am I wearing this? In case you hadn't noticed, this isn't just a spiffy, cool-looking shirt. 
This is the German national football jersey. And regardless of what happens, until the final game of this year's World Cup, Germany are still the champions. And they're my team. But be that as it may, soccer might not be your thing. I don't mean for it to be. I don't expect you to get excited over soccer if it's not your thing. But the reality is, it is many people's thing around us. Yesterday, I went for a run, and I passed a gentleman wearing a German football jersey uh, at the, the, the rugby fields. And of course, I had the obligatory Deutschland, and we had a little interaction as we ran off. I ran along the beachfronts, and there were two young guys sitting in a German car with a German flag, and I could hear them talking about the match. And as I ran past, I, of course, gave them the... And they were like, woohoo! <laughs> All around us are people in our community who are passionate for various things and moved by things that we might not be interested in. We need to become aware of what's going on in our world. You might ask a little closer to home. If you can see that up on the, the wall there, that is the map of White Rock and South Surrey. Uh, the, the, according to Stats Canada, the census data for 2016, South Surrey, White Rock roughly is Highway 10 along the northern end there and about 196th Street down to the border. That's White Rock, South Surrey. That's our world for White Rock Baptist Church. Now, I won't put anybody on the spot, but I wonder if you were to guess how many people live in that geographic area? Just shy of 105,000 people call that area home, up 10% from the last 2011 census. And projections say that it's going to grow by more than 10% over the next period because of the influx and the building of new homes and new areas. 105,000 people call this home. What's the average age? Well, according to Stats Canada, the average age for White Rock, South Surrey, is 46 years old. Now, some of you might have speculated that a little bit higher up, because sometimes we think that our world is just our little block, but it's not. I know some of you are going, but we've got a lot of seniors in our area. Doesn't that affect it? White Rock South Surrey has the biggest percentage or the highest percentage of people over 65 years old out of any BC areas. And take a guess at what the percentage over 65 is. 25%. Only a quarter are over 65 years old. 75% of that area are under 65 years old. Just for interest's sake, 14% are under 14 and you can drill down into the data because literally the whole world lives in that area. You can go down to the beachfront, you can go to any of our shopping malls, you can walk around the area and you will hear multiple languages and see multiple ethnicities and hear multiple people and see multiple people from all over the world. This is our world. What are our challenges? Our challenges are on both ends of the spectrum. Many in that area are afflicted by affluence. You heard that right. They are afflicted by affluence. They have more than they know what to do with and think they don't have enough. And they're pursuing wealth and riches. And their security is in their wealth and riches. On the other end of the spectrum, homelessness is on the rise. 
as more and more people cannot afford to live in this area and end up on the streets. We have a a drug addiction and overdose epidemic reaching right across Surrey. Depression and hopelessness impacts a huge percentage of our population. Again, and maybe linked into that, is boredom and a sense of purposelessness. This is the world in which White Rock Baptist Church finds itself. Our world around us needs us to be running in the right direction, to be confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, and as we do that, to be worshiping God. So when we say that White Rock Baptist Church seeks to be a loving community of hope in Jesus Christ, worshiping God and growing in faith to impact the world, that is what our world needs from us. When I read that there are 105,000 people living in our little area and fewer than 10% go to any church or faith or religious institution on the weekend. You know what? I don't get upset that churches like Village are growing. I pray for them. I pray that they would grow exponentially. And why I don't get upset is because 90%, over 90,000, in that area, need to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And therefore, I will do whatever it takes so that they would hear that confession and they too would be able to make that confession. Let's pray together. Father God, this morning as we finish off your letter, or Paul's letter to Timothy, We're just blown away by that exhortation to run, to pursue, to pursue righteousness and to to chase after you, God, and all that you have for us to be and to do. God, I pray for each one of us here at White Rock Baptist Church that indeed we would flee sin, we would flee unrighteousness, we would flee those things that entangle us and hold us back, and we would pursue God, I know that there are many of us who have become entangled. And I'm reminded right now as I pray of the word repent. Repent simply means to turn 180 degrees and head in the other direction. And so, Lord, if there are those in our midst who have confessed you as Lord and Savior but have become entangled, God, right now by your spirit, would you help them to repent? to to verbalize that even within their hearts, to repent of sin and to turn from sin and to chase after you. That, Father, as they do that, as they pursue you, that each one of us would be led to worship you, that we would utter our own doxology, our own confession of faith in the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we confess that Jesus is Lord, that God, we would do that publicly. We would declare it publicly so that the world around us in desperate need of hope, in desperate need of a savior would hear and would find. And then Father, as I think of confession, I know that there may be those in in our midst this morning who have never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord.
and as Savior. I want to give you the opportunity right now to make that confession. I'm not going to do anything public. I'm simply inviting you in your heart to say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord, you are Savior. And I confess that you are, and I believe in my heart that you are. And I yield my life to you. Father God, I pray that by your spirit you would move in our midst for your kingdom's sake. For we ask this in the matchless name of our risen and glorious Savior, who at the very name every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, and declare you our Savior, our Lord. The name of Jesus Christ, amen.